Truth News Network. An activist group threatens violence if the court doesn't play ball. Protests, threats against justices, an assassination attempt. And what comes out of Congress is more swamp gas than the bayous of East Texas. Threats from Capitol Hill, threats from the White House. Against who? Against you. So why is no one in the mainstream press talking about this? Well, we know the truth. We are the truth. We're TNN, the Truth News Network. And speaking loud and proud is Dan Newman. Yeah, I'm mostly proud of you because you're sticking it out. It's not easy to do today, is it? Well, you have all these things going on in your life, you know, like having to work, being thankful then for having a job, having to make enough money to support yourself and your family, and in many cases, extended family members. A lot of people are not even thinking about going to work now. Still, a plethora of unemployment benefits in states around the nation, and it makes employers have to ramp up what they are paying to get new employees, and when they do that, they have to raise their prices to consumers, which means those consumers have less if they continue to do business with those stores and restaurants and service companies. So everything is in the bullseye of what's going on emanating out of Washington, D.C. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to TNN Live. It's hump day. We like Wednesdays because every Wednesday you can look, and it's just a couple of days until the weekend. I love weekends. We do a lot during the week that's time-consuming. You know, things that kind of weigh on you. It's not like you have these 10 things you got to do and you go do one, you're finished, you go on to the next one, you finish, you go on to the next one. Everything just runs together. And sometimes, many times, it seems like we don't have things finished. That's not a good position for somebody that is ADD, which I am, to deal with. I never really thought about it. You know, we didn't hear about attention deficit disorder or anything like that when we were kids. We either were good kids or we weren't. (laughs) But I remember when Caleb, our son, who's our baby, yeah, baby, he's 42, but he's 6'9 and weighs 340 pounds. I just don't see how Marianne gave birth to somebody that big. (laughs) Well, he was a big boy when he was born, but he grew up and he grew up very quickly. He's always been heads and shoulders at least even when he was in pre-K, when he was in a classroom with other kids, subconsciously what that did to teachers, when they looked at Caleb, they expected him to be more mature, stay more in line, no more than other kids his age, just because of the size difference. You know what I'm talking about. Well, to make matters worse, his discipline in classrooms just went off the charts. They could never keep him occupied. He would get other kids in trouble. He would do things. When teachers gave assignments, he was through with his, just bam, 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 and he was done, and then he's looking for something to do. Years later, when he was in second grade, we found out he was diagnosed as being extreme ADD. So we medicated him, and I didn't like medicating him, but it helped a little bit, but it made some other things happen that we didn't like and he didn't like. So we just struggled and struggled. So we had him tested further. Come to find out, he tested 
off the charts as a genius. And the way we first noticed that there were some difficulties there when he he had gone through that kindergarten pre-K issue and even gone past the second grade, we could be sitting in the den and one of us, Marianne or I, walked by his, his room and his room was a wreck. I mean, junk scattered all over the floor, bed was horrible. If you told Caleb, go clean up your room, he would go psycho. He just couldn't fathom walking in there and seeing all that stuff that had to be cleaned up and that it was going to be his job. But let me tell you what we found out. You could tell Caleb, Caleb, go clean up your closet floor and straighten up your shoes. He'd go right in there and do it and come back. And then you could say, go pick up all the toys around the floor. He'd do it and come right back. And we realized his attention span was really, really short, and he related any task that was put in front of him to that very thing. He didn't know what he was doing, but it would overpower his thinking. But when he was on one task at a time, my goodness, there was never anybody better than him. Well, he went through growing up maturity problems, getting accustomed to integrating with kids at school, trying to get on the same level. You know all the stuff that we went through. His was obviously exacerbated. Now, he's 42. He's the executive chef of one of the largest hospitals in North Texas. He has 63 employees that work for him, and they adore him. The hospital he works in is one of the, um, it's a part of a chain, Humana, one of the biggest, I think the biggest non-for-profit hospital chain in the nation and all of the execs in corporate know Caleb and when they come into town there are a lot of hospitals in Dallas Fort Worth Humana I think owns about seven or eight different hospitals and surgery clinics so the execs from corporate they're in Dallas a whole lot of the time and they always want Caleb when they have executive corporate meetings he's the chef that prepares everything He's amazing. He keep he comes up with these recipes and stuff and cooks this food. We have no idea where it comes from. He was that way when he was a kid at home. He just loved to cook. And he would think of these things. He wasn't looking up and finding a recipe for this or a recipe for that. He'd figure out what went together before he ever put anything in a in a pot. And he is a big boy, as I said, 6'9", 340, which means he eats well. <laughs> and he's with us. We eat well. I'm telling you this to explain what a lot of people go through. It seems like the more things that are going on in their lives every day, the worse they get and the worse they live emotionally and cognitively. They can't figure everything out. It tears their minds up. And then that impacts what they do and how they interact with other people no matter what they're doing. Moms, dads, workers, bosses, it doesn't matter. We all have a different way of dealing with things that we see on our plate. And anybody that tells you they know how to do it all and they've got it all together, they are flat lying to you. Nobody does. None of us are perfect. There was one perfect person that walked this earth. And he's not here right now, Jesus Christ. And I'm, 
I'm a pretty smart person, but I'm nowhere near Jesus Christ. And I'm one of those guys, I don't do real well. I'm, I'm not nearly as bad as Caleb was when he was young, but I don't do well when I have a bunch of really important things that are thrown at me at the same time. It's hard for me to wrap my mind around all of them together. I can break them up and do a great job. So that's what I try to do here. But when you're depending on the rulers of the nation and the rulers of the world to set the stuff that's important for Americans and we need to know about, sometimes it gets pretty tough. And let me tell you, I cannot remember when so many important things have been on the landscape of really important stuff for the United States, the people, and our government, not just for today, but what we're looking ahead at that is coming down the road toward us and our leaders aren't preparing well for it. Those are the things that you need to know about. So I am glad you're here. I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you being a part of this. Anytime you want to weigh in with a question, make a comment on anything we're talking about, we'll pay for the call. It's toll free. one 877 truth 1-866-378-7884. Yesterday, our correspondent, broadcast, photojournalist, uh, Steve Baker, you know the name by now, he is involved in the first trials of the Oath Keepers in Washington, D.C. He is definitely involved in it. He's in the courtroom, and uh, he's involved with the defense. He reported in yesterday. Spent a, he walked out of the courtroom to make his uh, entry into our Tuesday segment that we do every week with Steve at 10 o'clock Central Time. He talked to us about this Oath Keepers trial that's underway. Hardly anybody knows anything about the Oath Keepers and the part that they supposedly played in the January 6th insurrection. This trial is supposed to be, and what it's targeted to be, is another way to denigrate Donald Trump and MAGA supporters right before the midterm elections. That's why this trial went live last week. And of course, now we hear the January 6th committee's got another prime time show coming out where they're going to do the same thing. Let me just say this as we get started today. Democrats are squirming like I don't remember them ever squirming. They're watching their certain seats in the House and the Senate, the ones that they just knew they owned, they're watching their control just melt away. When American people are waking up and realizing, looking around at the landscape of our lives today, it's not good. It's really not good in very many spots. And those spots where it's not good are the spots in which the American people, the American voters live in, Every day. Think about it. Let's think real quickly of those areas. Well, we have inflation. And I do believe when people go into the voting booth 33 days from now, that's going to be top of mind for everybody. Inflation. Never seen since Jimmy Carter was president. Never seen it anything like this. The prices of things are going up every day. And there isn't a one single reason for it. It's a multitude of reasons that come from things that are being made in decisions pretty much by the Biden administration and the stuff he gets pushed through the Democrat House 
in the Democrat Senate. And what's happening, to be honest with you, what's happening is our government is splitting right down the middle and you have on one side the haves and on the other side the have-nots. But that happens all the time. That's the way life exists all the time, right? But what's different now is the haves are standing up and pontificating, looking down at the poor minions, the have-nots that are down below the pulpit or the hill from which the elites are talking, and they're just denigrating everybody that doesn't agree with them. And of course, nobody but those that agree 100% with those leftists and those haves standing up on top of the hill, you have no credibility, you have no voice, you have no rights to push back, and they're trying to take more and more of your rights away from you, and those that they can't just come right out and grab, they're very surreptitiously going around those that are standing in the way and weaponizing government entities against those have-not activists. We're going to get into some of those today. But I think right now, with all of that going on, and I mean, it's not just the economy. It's not just that. We have illegal immigration. We don't even have immigration. I don't know why they tagged that word on there. It's illegal aliens. And by the way, that's the terminology that's included in the federal laws regarding immigration. Anybody that comes here is an alien. And if they're here illegally, they're an illegal alien. Of course, that's not what they want to make it sound like. It's got to be like these are our neighbors, you know, people that just live down the street from us. And we want to let our neighbors come in and get to know us and we get to know them and they bring some new ideas to us and we bring new ideas to them. They talk about all that. But none of that is important. None of that is important until it gets right in their backyard. you got to realize our government is comprised of people from all 50 states, but the heaviest concentration of people in the House and the Senate Where do they hail from? New York, California, Illinois, Michigan, and they're all blue states. Those are the states, by the way, that are struggling more in pretty much every area we talk about. Why? Because they're controlled totally, almost totally, by hardcore Democrats, the ones that I referenced at the top. They are the haves And anybody who's not a Democrat is a have-not. And, of course, they talk down to everybody. And the American people are, in large part, getting tired of that. And so immigration, it hasn't even been a big deal. In fact, it's been everything but a big deal to those haves that are living in these big states. Why? Because of those we mentioned, California is the only one that has a southern border. And their issue in California is nothing like that of Texas and New Mexico and Arizona. You know why? Their border across the southern tip of California down below San Diego, it's not very wide. It's easy to police. And so they stop them. Immigration, Border Patrol, they stop them. But they still are full, the state of California, with illegal immigrants. But the worst places 
or places like New York and Illinois. Now, that is not said to be because there are so many illegals there. It's because there hasn't been illegals there. So they look down at Texas and see, you know, you got 1,500, 4,000, I think the number's up to 4,500 a day average illegals that are coming in and are being accosted by border patrols at the borders of Texas. 4,500 a day. And so this morning, I was watching the news very early, and five buses pulled up in New York City this morning with immigrants. Now, let me just say this. If it's a big bus that's fitted out to maximize the seating capacity, those buses have about 62 to 65 spots for people to go. Most of the buses are in the 50 to 55 range, but let's just say they're all seating 60. So you would have 300 illegals coming into New York. Mary Eric Adams is going bonkers. He can't believe it. He is screaming and hollering about uh, the, the, the borders down there, the governors down there, Greg Abbott of Texas, how evil they are because they're sending, they're just putting these people on these buses and sending them up there. And they're making it sound like in the news that those illegals have no say-so. They fill out forms and they sign a release. They know where they're going and they want to go there. And not all of them want to go to New York. They want to go other places, and they do. Florida gets a lot of them. Chicago gets a lot of them. Okay, those leaders never said anything until these governors started sending some of these illegals up there. And the governors, by the way, are, and the states are paying for it. The federal government's not. That's been part of the rub. The federal government, by federal law, is the only entity in politics that can control our borders. And therefore, when they don't want any control over our borders, states have no say-so. And that's been the rub. So, we get these haves, these elites that are out there and they're laughing at people in Texas. You know, those people in Texas that have sustained at the hands of illegal immigrants in two years, 600,000 felony lawbreakers, cases against Texas citizens by illegal aliens. And those crimes range in everything from breaking and entering to first-degree murder. That doesn't bother people in New York or California or Illinois or Massachusetts because it's not happening to them, those people that commit those. And I'm not saying immigrants are evil and immigrants are criminals. I'm not saying. What I am saying is it's been admitted. This administration does not know who's coming across our southern border, doesn't have any desire to check them out to learn if they have a criminal past, if they've been here before. Many of them have been here numerous times. In fact, we've had... I mean, stories in the news where somebody's been deported and gets back into the U.S. three and four and five times, committing crimes many times every time they come here, and also having a rap sheet in the countries from which they come. But our Homeland Security doesn't do that. They don't have a process to do that where it's effective. And the way immigration law is worded, if an immigrant comes here and they haven't done the proper operation to get here, which is to go to a consulate or an embassy of our country 
in their country, which every country in the modern world has that, and they apply for asylum there. And they wait in their home country until our courts, our immigration courts, approve their application for asylum to come here. Then they come. Any other way getting in here, if they're not citizens of the country, is illegal. But the Biden administration, they don't give a rip about that. They don't care. They don't abide by the law. In fact, Alejandro Mayorkas, Homeland Security Secretary, and even all the way up the line to President Joe Biden, they're breaking laws, federal laws, immigration laws every day by not stopping these illegals. What's supposed to happen is these illegals are supposed to immediately be returned to their country of origin. That's in the law. That is not happening. And so this is all being brought on by our leaders, leaders that have always said, hey, we love immigrants. They're great people. We owe them a chance to come find a better way for their lives and for their families. That's all they want. But they won't talk to you about doing it legally. And they really don't care how many come across in Texas. More than 2 million just since Joe Biden's been in office. Think about that. It never strikes home until it strikes home. Well, I think it's quite obvious that Democrats love the idea of illegal immigrants. They love the idea of them being in the shadows. But then when they're actually confronted with it and they have to explain it to their constituents, why their shelters and their cities and their communities are being overrun, then suddenly they want to make the problem go away. Strong words there from Fox News host Tommy Lahren calling out Democrats for their stance on the border. She called out the left for loving the idea of illegal immigrants until they're actually confronted with a crisis on their doorstep. This comes after the fact that New York City Mayor Eric Adams had planned to set up a migrant centre in a Bronx district to accommodate an influx of illegal immigrants in the area. The district was the one in which the Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez represents. But when confronted with that problem-solving idea, AOC said that she thought there was a better solution available. I agree with them. There is a humanitarian crisis going on, and a lot of it's going on at our southern border where these migrants, these illegal immigrants are coming in. So maybe, maybe we are getting to the point, and I don't want to be overly optimistic, but maybe we are getting to the point where Democrats are finally going to start looking at the Biden administration, and they're going to say, we need an actual solution because we're being inundated, we are being overrun, the border cities and states are being inundated, and now these sanctuary cities are being inundated. Everything sounds good on paper and in a tweet until you have to deal with it in real life. AOC is finding that out. These Democrat mayors are finding it out. And I hope to goodness pretty soon the Biden administration is going to find that one out too. Maybe it'll be November, but we're hoping for a a soon uh, realization. Now, AOC's comments about finding a better solution has not gone down well for her. She has been an avid fighter for immigrant rights. Some social media users were angry over the comments. One person attached this photo and tweeted... AOC is upset because a tent city is being built in her district to house illegals. Not in my district. Wasn't she the one crying at the border about how migrants were being treated? Another wrote, Mayor Adams will move tents for illegal aliens from Bronx after AOC throws a fit, copying her wealthy friends in Martha's Vineyard. As soon as the illegal aliens appear in public, out from the shadows, the Democratic Party shows its true racist and elitist colours. Suddenly unwoke. AOC wants 10 city for illegal aliens moved out of her district, another wrote. Finally, the political pleasantries didn't last long. 
AOC rips Mayor Adams' migrant tents in her district. We can get to a place with a better solution. The situation at the southern border of Texas is critical. The country is experiencing record high numbers of illegal immigrants crossing into the United States. So far in the 2022 fiscal year, Border Patrol agents have encountered 2.1 million migrants, and that's just the number of those they've seen. It has been one of the big political issues for the country for years, but in the last few years, the numbers have soared. States like Texas, which borders Mexico, have bared the brunt of immigrants flocking to the area from Central and South American countries. Republican leaders from Texas, Arizona and Florida, which doesn't even border Mexico, have begun busing migrants to Democratic states. These include New York, Washington, Chicago, Sacramento in California, and even Martha's Vineyard, which is an upmarket holiday destination for the elite in Massachusetts. Critics believe that those leaders misled migrants into believing that they were being taken there for a better life, but in actuality were being used for a political stunt. When Florida Governor Ron DeSantis paid for 50 illegal immigrants to be taken to Martha's Vineyard last month, it created a lot of controversy. He was slammed for the inhumane treatment of migrants. However, Democrats were criticised for ignoring the fact that the border has seen 2 million migrants at its doorstep in 2022 alone. Latina Democrat Gloria Romero called out her own party for its reaction at the time. So here we are facing a border that has not been secured for quite some time. Over 2 million uh, migrants coming through and it took only 50 brown people showing up in one of the most exclusive democratic enclaves without leaf blowers and without mops for it to be declared a national emergency and to get the media focused on this. It's absolutely hypocritical. Didn't that illustrate what I said at the top of the show that we find ourselves now and now more than ever with elites that look down on everybody that doesn't think their way and doesn't agree with the way that they think. They're standing up on top of a hill. The rest of us are down in the bottom. We're undeserving. We don't, shouldn't, and they won't give anybody that's not in their group a chance to even speak. And when you do get a chance to speak, which is rare, they simply diminish anything you say. Basically because you're not worthy Why? Because you don't think the way that they think. But on this immigration thing, they loved it. Until Ron DeSantis, Greg Abbott, governors of Florida and Texas respectively, started sending some of these illegals to their states and their cities. Now, I think it's it's really necessary to make this point about Martha's Vineyard and New York City and Chicago, where Abbott and DeSantis have sent the bulk of these illegals that they've transported away from the southern border. And uh, I think it's safe to note that these people are coming in and they're being told by Homeland Security, Joe Biden's Homeland Security, we're going to take you somewhere. We're going to let you go into the country and do this or do that. Well, Abbott's people are asking these people, hey, where would you like to go? And in large part, they want to go to Florida. They want to go to Illinois. And of late, they kind of like the idea of Martha's Vineyard. They don't just get on a bus. They're processed there. They fill out forms. And one of those forms they fill out is a release saying if they're going to Martha's Vineyard, they're doing so 
at their desire, their request. It's been explained to them. Nobody at the top of the hill wants to say that. They just don't want illegal immigrants in their cities and states. And the conundrum that I mentioned just a second ago is each one of these states and each one of these cities have bragged from the beginning as being sanctuary states and sanctuary cities where illegal immigrants are welcome. Y'all come on up until they come up. Then it's like, oh my gosh, we don't have the infrastructure to handle this. Two million, two million a year down south. And they get a few hundred people in the Big Apple in Chi-Town and they can't handle it? It has nothing to do with they can't handle it. It has to do with they don't want to handle it. And it further has to do with how they look at all of these illegals. To them, they're nothing but a talking point. And if they get them here and somehow get them registered to vote, hey, 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 we're going to have a bigger voting class as Democrats because we Democrats are the ones, we're on the top of the hill. We control everything. So anything good that happens, it's because of us and what we say and what we do. And we're helping people, the deserving underclass citizens from these foreign countries that just want to be like us. (laughs) And so screw that law thing. We don't have to follow the law. We're the Democrat Party. We have the White House. We have the House of Representatives. And we have the Senate. So we're just going to keep on trucking. So what else is happening in your world? Well, I guess you know we owe a lot of money. Joe Biden has seen to it that we owe a lot more money. His ceaseless borrowing addiction has now driven our gross national debt past $31 trillion for the first time amid record inflation, interest rates going through the roof now, and fears of a looming recession. We're in a recession by the government's definition. Y'all quit saying we're about to get in one. We've been in one for at least three months. Our public debt closed at $3.1 trillion on Monday. That's according to the Treasury Department. This is a milestone. And it comes as the Federal Reserve continues to ramp up interest rates to fight the highest inflation in 40 years now. And as the government borrows more money to finance tax cuts, even as it sends billions of taxpayer dollars offshore to Ukraine in aid. And by the way, today, Joe Biden sent another $60 billion. Is that the number? $600 $600 million, I'm sorry. Another $600 million. That brings it up to, you know, $40 billion that we've given to Ukraine. $40 billion that we don't have, so how do they handle it? Well, they just go to the bank and buy, borrow some money. That's not technically what it is. The way it works is the Federal Reserve, they uh, go downstairs at their printing press and they print out some U.S. Treasury bonds. And then... They sell those bonds to individuals if they're individuals that want to buy them, but typically they are sold in auctions and the big banks, the really big banks, they buy them in big insurance company investment firms, and then they sell them 
to clients that go in their portfolios. And then the government has to pay those bondholders that pay for all that this uh, 60 million new bonds that will be done, they have to pay those bondholders' interest quarterly. We never buy back any of the bonds. Why would we? Nobody's asking us to, but they want to make darn sure we don't default on the payments of interest to them. And if that ever happens, we'll fall down in the bottom of the heap when it comes to financial and financially sound countries in the planet. We've never been there. We've been close a couple of times. But the deeper we go in this thing, the more something serious looks imminent for us. And I mentioned the additional money that Biden's sending to Ukraine, $625 million in direct military assistance, an advanced HIMAR, HIMAR rocket systems, 155-millimeter howitzers, armored vehicles, ammunition topped the list deemed critical to Kiev's defense against Russia's invasion. Now, I'm not going to get into the details of what's going on on the battlefield other than it's a back-and-forth thing. Russia makes a, a big move and comes in and takes over territory, and then the Ukrainian army is very successful at pushing the Russians back. Who's winning this thing? I got to be honest with you. It's anybody's guess. If you, It just depends on who you talk to. But meanwhile, we're spending a lot of money over there. It's a lot of money that we don't have. So what's happening over here? Well, let me just tell you a little insight about some of the things they don't want you to know about, but you're living through. The oil pricing and gas prices going through the roof. Now, I want you to forget about the noise you're hearing whenever you hear a Democrat slanted host or a Democrat politician from the bottom all the way up to the top of our government, including Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the cause of this inflation. His policies, just two of them, are the ones that have made this happen. What are they? On day one as president, he canceled the XL pipeline permits for that big pipeline to run from central Canada right through the heart of our nation down to the Gulf Coast so that those really, really successful oil fields up in Canada They need to transport oil and get it to a port very easily. They can't do that in Canada. Canada's as wide as we are, and they don't have the water infrastructure that we do. So they have to transport everything that they're going to export internationally to either their west coast or the east coast, and it's really expensive to do that. But our government in the past, not this government, but our governments in the past have worked very closely. And XL Pipeline has been building that pipeline from southern Canada down to Houston and New Orleans ports for those ships down there to transport this oil around the world. Day one, Biden cut cut it off. So what does that mean? That just means they had to go somewhere else. Well, Where's oil going to go if it goes to the west coast of Canada instead of down to the Gulf of Mexico? It's going to go to Asia. Who's over there? And who's the biggest gas commander, demander of gas, natural gas, oil on the planet? China. 
So they're the one. Canada's going to sell it. They got to sell it. And if they can't get it to our Gulf shore to be distributed down there to our markets in our market. Yeah. We, we send ships through the Suez canal from our Gulf coast ports to all over the world on that side of the world. And they go around through the Gulf of Mexico and out into the Atlantic ocean and send our goods and supplies all over the world that way. But it's harder for us to export anything now because we're not producing oil like we did since Joe Biden's been president. He stopped the production of 3 million barrels of oil domestically here in the United States that the day before he took office, that 3 million barrels was being processed every day. The next day, it stopped. 3 million. You take 3 million barrels of oil a day. Think about that. That's 90 million barrels of oil that is in the ground still. It's there. But he stopped the ability to take that out of the ground and get it to our uh, refineries to make it into the products that are distributed around the world. And so what happens then? Well, a couple of things happen, and you're living through it. The 3 million barrels a day that we were processing ourselves out of our ground, that's gone. We've got to go somewhere else to get it. So where do we go to get it? There are a lot of really small oil producers on the planet. Most of them, however, are part of a big system in the Middle East, OPEC. So we rely on OPEC to make up the slack for what we're not able to produce here. OPEC, they uh, they don't really like the way they've been treated by the Western world, and they don't have any desire or any need to cut prices on what they're selling to us and anybody else in the world. And he who holds the gold makes all the rules. And when all the oil or most of the oil is sitting over there and we need it and other countries need it because we can't send it to other countries that we were before our excess. Remember October, a month before the 2020 election, when Biden was elected, the United States for the first time in decades became energy independent. That meant we were producing enough energy through all of our energy sources, the big one being, of course, oil and gas more than we needed, more than we could use. So we're selling it aggressively to other countries. They don't get that from us now. So they're looking for oil and gas from other countries the same way we are. So what determines the price of oil and gas? Whoever's got all the gas determines how much it's going to cost to sell to other countries. That's why you have over the last year and a half paid way more at the pump when you go to fill up your car. It's going to get worse. Listen to what's happening out there. OPEC, Joe Biden has been begging them to increase their distribution of oil worldwide, which would bring the price of oil down, therefore the price of gas at the pump. OPEC decided yesterday, nope, We're not going to do what you want us to do. In fact, we're thinking about reducing the amount of oil that we're exporting. And what will that do? It will just increase the demand. And let's be honest, folks. 
most of the nation runs on fossil fuel products. And so when those are in scarce supply, we're out there, if we own a production company, a service company, or we're like a, you know, Gulf Oil or somebody like that, we're looking for oil to sell and there's just as many of us that are doing it and the guys that have the resources we need, OPEC in this case, they're tightening their belt and saying, nope, we don't have to produce more oil and gas for you. That's your problem. We're going to do what we want to do and what's best for us. And sometimes later it may be okay. But right now, they're going to raise the price. uh, They're going to produce less oil and gas and raise the prices. So it was $6.41 a gallon in Northern California for a gallon of gasoline last Friday. $6.41. It is estimated in one of the states like California, California, New York, maybe Illinois, the price of gasoline is going to go over 8 bucks a gallon. Can you believe that? Now, if you put that in the context of inflation and other stuff that's wrapped around inflation, then you start talking about everything going up because it's going to cost more to transport all these goods that we took for granted when you went to Walmart or Kroger. Not just the gas pump. All of that's going to go up. And it's not. Nothing out there financially exists in a vacuum. The way an economy runs is you have a supply side and you have a demand side. And those two have to work together and find mutual ground on which both sides can make it happen. And when the other side changes my side in one way or the other, prices going up or me not being able to get stuff, and when price is going up, I can't afford it. It's a, it's a daisy chain of negotiation and everything changes every day. You don't even think about it. You can't get your brain around how much it's going to change. But the bottom line when it comes down to it, goods and services, services cost us more. And the Biden administration wants to blame that on the evil oil companies. And he gets up and pontificates about We release these leases and these oil companies aren't drilling. They need to produce more oil domestically. When months ago, just a few months ago, he met with them and said he wanted them to cut their supply. Why? They're trying desperately to feed the demand for energy away from fossil fuels to these amazing electric cars, electric vehicles. Why? Because they're very friendly to the environment. I mentioned this, I think, on Monday. I heard an ad over the weekend. One of the Chevy, Chevrolet EVs, electric vehicles. You know, they've they've had a lot of hybrids. Runs on some gas, runs on electricity, and you just flip a switch, and obviously you can't go as far using just the electric power, so there's a switch to flip over for gasoline. But they never talk about what the mix is. And this ad was bragging that this brand new Chevrolet EV, it can go 37 miles before it has to either be recharged or it's got to be pulled into the garage. (laughs) Oh my gosh. And then there's this one. You remember that uh, Humvee 
that brand new all-electric 2023 GMC Hummer that's coming out. Biden went to the plant and he drove it and fell in love with it. It's quite, it's, it's really quite a vehicle. It's very expensive. Well, one YouTuber that owns one is claiming that the quickest charging electric vehicle on the market right now, which is, they tout it to be the 2023 GMC Hummer, apparently takes quite a while to charge the battery when you pull it into the garage. And he shows it on a video. You can Google it. It's been Googled millions of times since it came out. It suggests it could take up to four days to fully charge this new 2023 GMC Hummer. Could be an issue for consistent day-to-day activity, let alone in an emergency in a worst-case scenario. Four days. Four days. Four days. The narrator on this Automotive Focus channel, it's TFLEV, says that just plugged it in at my house, 120 volt using the Hummer cable, level one charging. Right now it's about 6 p.m. on Tuesday, and it says it will be fully charged at 10.55 on Saturday, which is four plus days of charging. A level two charger could get the job done in just 24 hours. However, according to the show and tell video, I have a juice box, level two charger, 240 volts in my garage, he explained. Plug in level two charger. Now it says it'll be done tomorrow by 630. So about 24 hours of charging from 4% to 100%. It's a 212 kilowatt hour battery. Still takes a while. So you can go, go, go look at it. You can go to, go to Google and do this in your search bar. This is how long it takes to charge up the new Hummer battery, and it's on YouTube. By the way, the basic entry-level model of this Hummer has a retail price of about 87000 A level one charger that plugs into a standard wall outlet is included with each of the vehicles sold. That level two charger is going to set the consumer back by 500 bucks not including the cost to install it. So if you plan to use an electric vehicle for all your driving needs, investment in a level two charger is definitely worth it. While the level one charging cables that come with these electric vehicles when you buy them are useful in a pinch, it's not very practical to rely on their slow charge times to power up your EV on a daily basis. Kamala Harris, by the way, our vice president, she went to one of the EV plants and looked at some EV cars, and here's her weigh-in. This is her first observation. She says, the electricity is silent. No fumes. How do I know it's actually working? (laughs) So why are we having this conversation? Well, It's something the Green New Deal, they told us from the beginning, even before the beginning, AOC and all the other far lefties, they told us climate change was going to dominate and we were going to have to get rid of all fossil fuel. And then Joe Biden's elected Pete Buttigieg gets appointed to be the Secretary of Transportation and he's the spokesperson for everything to do with electric vehicles. Yesterday's broadcast of the Fox News Channel's Your World, 
Buttigieg says that states like New York and California are going to be ready to transition to electric vehicles by 2035, and that if the U.S. can't execute a transition like this over the course of more than a decade, I don't know what to tell you. This is America, of course. We can do something like that. Mayor Pete, you know, he was the mayor of a little city in northern Indiana. That's his leadership capacity and his experience. And, of course, now he gets a title of Secretary of Transportation, and he knows everything about everything in transportation. We ought to be able to do that. Well, then if you're going to do a transition to EVs and you're not going to be finished with the transition till 2035, why the heck is the President of the United States cracking down and declaring death for fossil fuel? You've got to have it, even if a full, total, 100% transition away from fossil fuels to all electric vehicles is possible, and experts say it, it's not. I don't believe anybody's got an extension cord long enough to fly a plane from, oh, L.A. to Hawaii, do you? You're not going to put batteries to turn jet engines. There's no way that would ever work. So there will never be an environment. It's unfeasible at this point to be totally electric. And by the way, have you read their transition plan? You have? Would you send me a copy of it? I'm just joking. They don't have one. They've not presented any transition plan. They're doing what they think will make them look good in the eyes of Americans. But let me just tell you this. Less than one-tenth of one percent of the vehicles on the road today are electric, and Americans aren't going in that direction because it doesn't work. The whole process doesn't work. Neil Cavuto, who was the host of that show that Buttigieg was on yesterday, here's what he said. Secretary, as you know, much of the power was out across half the state of Florida for a while. Much of it's resumed, sir, but it didn't make some folks think, boy, these electric vehicles that are being pushed between what happened in Florida and the grid that was compromised to the point where California Governor Newsom wanted people to cool it for a while, when and how often they charged their electric vehicles, Do you think this reminds folks that we're not ready or the EVs are not ready for prime time? And Secretary Buttigieg, he responded, well, actually, I think this is a great example of one of the many benefits of those tools. You know, I was just at the Detroit Auto Show a couple of weeks ago. One of the things that was very impressive about some of the vehicles that we saw, including, for example, the pickup trucks that are on the market now, entering on the market right now, is that their power can actually flow both ways. And he explained it in his wisdom, of course. He said, so in an extreme event from a neighborhood resiliency perspective, they can actually work basically like a generator, except that you don't have to have diesel ready for them. What they're doing is they're using the battery capacity to power a home. And in that sense, could be very useful in a scenario like this. Look, I don't think anybody thinks we're ready here, sitting here in 2022, for a scenario where overnight there's some instant transition to electric vehicles. And then if I was talking to him, it was Neil Cavuto. I'm not a Cavuto fan, but Neil is a he's a consummate professional. But what I would have done is said, well, 
Mr. Secretary, you can't get enough electricity to run vehicles to charge them up in a realistic period of time in an average citizen's garage. And you're talking about using that battery to power a house at the same time? The vehicle? Cavuto, I I would have loved to have seen it. I didn't, but he cut in to ask the mayor, you want to do this by 2035, right? In some states like California and New York, we want to do so by 2035. You think we're ready to do that? Buttigieg answered, well, yeah, I mean... GM said they're not even going to be making anything but electric vehicles after 2035. So if the U.S. can't execute a transition like this over the course of more than a decade, I don't know what to tell you. This is America, of course. We could do something like that. Different states have different approaches. That, my friends, is a conversation that's not being spurred on by an expert. Mayor Pete knows squat about the electric vehicle industry, and not just that, anything to do with the industry of transportation. Why? Because he's never worked in that field. He doesn't know anything about it. He was blasted when he ran for president by the people that live in the town he was mayor of because he couldn't take care of potholes in in the downtown areas of of the town. South Bend, Indiana. And he's now telling us that we need to transition away from fossil fuels when his boss has cut back on 3 million barrels of production of oil every day by American oil companies, which makes the price of gas go up here. It's more than double what it was for me in Louisiana than it was the day Joe Biden became president. It's more than double. What am I getting out of that? Nothing. I'm getting the same stuff that I was getting in my tank before and paying twice for it. That's a legitimate concern to have because the guy who's at the top of the heap, Secretary of Transportation, he can't hand you a transition plan. It can't be done. But they regulate. The government regulates anything that's going to be done in a transition to them. It just makes no sense. We're just scratching the surface here today. I'm sure you heard about Tucker Carlson having Tony Bobolinsky on his show last night for the whole hour. And Bobolinsky was coming back three years ago. He just busted the door open on Hunter Biden, his laptop, and all kinds of wrongdoing and involvement with then-Vice President Joe Biden when he was working overseas, going to China, going to Ukraine, and Hunter Biden was tagging along. Bobolinsky was in it up to his eyeballs as kind of the operations manager of this uh, vast financial corporation, I'll call it, that Hunter Biden was heading. Joe Biden's brother was heavily involved in it, but Bobolinsky was the linchpin at pulling it all together. And last night was a blockbuster. I made sure I recorded it. It's one of those things you go back and watch again and again. We can't do the whole thing here. But after we go into our break on the way out, you're going to hear about 10 minutes of the, I guess, the the best part, the sweet spot of this interview with Tony Bobolinsky last night. And you don't want to miss this. In fact, 
here's what we'll do. I'll put a link to it. After the show is over, I'll put a link to it up on the website, truthnewsnet.org. If you want to, if you want to grab it, you can grab it. It's something after you hear it. It's, it's going to blow your mind. That's next. You get a whole lot of something with Farmer's Policy Perks. So much, I'm going to have to speed things up. You can get the claim-free discount, which gives you money off your homeowner's policy if you've been claim-free for three consecutive years. Also applies for three successive years, three years straight, and what's known to insurance fans as the claim-free three-peat. Get a whole lot of something with Farmer's Policy Perks. Start with a quote by calling 1-800-FARMERS. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Now for the legal something. Not available in every state. Only available with select farmers branded policies subject to terms and conditions underwritten by Farmers Trucker Fire Insurance Exchanges or Affiliate. Have you heard about Blank Slate yet? It's the best board game. In fact, Blank Slate has quickly become the new favorite with everybody around here. It's very simple. Unlike other games, no one gets embarrassed. Blank Slate is all about having fun, right? That's what we want. It's perfect for when you get the fam together or play with friends online because it's a game that everyone can get into. And if you need proof, just check out any of the hundreds of five-star reviews. It's basically selling out. So get Blank Slate now at Target, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you buy games. For over 75 years, people have saved money with... Oh, with Geico. Oh, sorry. Here we what? go from the top. And action. For over 75 years, people have saved money with Gecko. So... Cut it. What? What did I say? Gecko. I said Gecko. Oh. For over 75 years... <laughs> Keep it together. I'm good, I'm good. <clears throat> For over 70... <laughs> what are you doing there? Stop making me laugh. Geico. Saving people money for over 75 years. Don't look at me. Don't look at me. Those in the know like to stay in the realm of innovation. Join them. It's easy to keep up with the latest trends and own the latest tech with BMW Select as it offers you the option to drive a brand new BMW every three years. You also get to tailor your deal to suit your pocket and your lifestyle. Visit select.bmw.co.za for more. BMW Select. Dynamic finance for ultimate control. BMW Financial Services is an authorized FSP and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. There's only one Dan Newman. Anymore. Well, that just wouldn't be fair. Before we get into the Bobolinsky thing with Tucker Carlson last night, just thinking about this. When we buy oil from overseas anywhere, say Europe, or, or say the Middle East, we got to get it here. It's the same thing when people buy it from us. Do you know that since this all began, weeks after Joe Biden was inaugurated back in 2021, shipping oil from here to the European continent costs 12 times more than it did the day of our election. Now, who pays for that? Well, there are about 60,000 barrels of oil on a big super tanker. It's added to the price that people end up paying at the, at the pump. So it's much smarter for us, being that we're a huge oil producer. October, the month before the 2020 election, we were independent. We weren't shipping it anywhere except to sell and we weren't buying anything from anybody over there. That's why it's supply and demand, I told you. That's why the price of gasoline keeps going up here. It's because it's costing more and more. And these companies can't afford to take it on the, in the shorts. They can cut their prices a little bit, but they can't because of what they're paying for to get it to the pump. 
It's a big, big, deep process. I think most people understand that. Nevertheless, Tony Bobolinsky and Tucker Carlson, I'm going to step to the side. Tucker starts this off, but turn your volume up. This is one you don't want to miss. What's amazing in retrospect is that two years ago when this story first broke, the usual liars and power worshipers in the media, those of whom the rare few who even acknowledged that Tony Bobolinsky existed, dismissed the story by saying, well, yeah, but it's Biden's son and nothing to do with Biden. As if Hunter Biden would be able to make millions of dollars in, say, Ukraine or China on the basis of his own expertise, which amounted to precisely nothing. He never had a real job. He had no skills. How was he getting so rich? Because his dad was the vice president. That's how. They were selling access to the United States government with Joe Biden's brother. And the money was in part going to Joe Biden. And that was all very clear because Hunter Biden said it repeatedly on text that any news organization could have read. But Tony Bobolinsky already knew that because he saw that. He'd already met with Joe Biden directly. So we asked him again about this. Put some flesh on those bones. And he did. Watch. You're business partners with Hunter and Jim Biden, Joe Biden's son and brother. Correct. Both of them, Hunter Biden has received some coverage for his art. Uh, I call it the Biden family because, as you know, it's been well, well, I say well documented. You well documented it. But I met with Joe multiple times. Yes. And now, subsequent to the election, he's now the sitting president of the United States. But there are hundreds of data points that Joe Biden was acting in, uh, in a capitalistic term, I would say, the chairman. The chairman of J.P. Morgan doesn't take eight meetings down with the people, you know, analyzing companies. The chairman serves a purpose, right? He's a figurehead. He shows up in meetings, shakes hands, advises, you know, has faith in his team. Effectively, that was Joe Biden's role in the Biden family business ventures and uh, around the world. And not just my venture. I met with him uh, um, multiple times. Um, I think it was the Daily Mail that made a recording public where Joe Biden reaches out to um, Hunter Biden in December 2018 after the New York Times had published a extensive article on CFC Chairman Yi and how they were deploying billions of dollars around the world with different governance, ba governments basically acting as the capitalistic arm of One Belt, One Road. So I'd like um, to play that voicemail. This is from the sitting president of the United States. This is from Joe Biden to his son, Hunter. Hey, pal, it's dad. It's 815 um, on uh, Wednesday night. If you get a chance, give me a call. Not, nothing urgent. I just want to talk to you. I thought the article, at least the thing on online, that's going to be printed tomorrow in the Times, was good. I think it's clear. And uh, anyway, um, if you get a chance, give me a call. I love you. I mean, that's it. That's staggering. The sitting president of the United States, but that's Joe Biden in his own voice telling the American people, I was always well aware of the business ventures my family was involved in. So much so I could tell my son, I read a detailed article that has 50 facts in it. Imagine just sitting in a room with national security and the intel agencies with that article, talking about corruption, talking about China, talking about the Chinese Communist Party, the Liberation Army of China. Joe Biden is saying, I read that article and you're in the clear, Hunter. And he leaves that voicemail. For a son. So, um, do you think that the Bidens were aware of 
the effects on the United States of doing business with China? It's funny, I think in their mind they view Russia as a bigger threat than China. Um, they sort of talk and operate like that, uh, which was always surprising to me. Um, uh, but uh, I think they're well aware of it. Um, the magnitude, you know, Hunter in his own uh, words talks about being in business with the spy chief of China. Did you ever talk to Hunter Biden directly about this? Obviously, I was aware of what was being done in 2015 and 2016, um, by James Gillier and Rob Walker with the Chinese company CFC while Joe Biden was still the sitting vice president of the United States. Um, there was a text message where I was early on having uh, discussions with Hunter about, you know, what is CFC focused on um, and Chairman Yi? Are they doing any deal or what kind of deals? And Hunter in a very long text message says, you know, we're willing to do any deals except I think he excluded, you know, military tech that would give the Chinese uh, military an advantage over the United States military. But outside of that, they were ready and willing to do any other deal. So you said they viewed Russia, and it's, it's clearly true that they do, as a bigger threat than China. And as someone who has worked around the world, you, you think that's ludicrous. But they were also willing to do business deals with Russia, correct? Um, they were. They were. And um, there's a very well documented, um, you know, Senator Johnson and Senator Grassley. And sadly enough, it came out after the election, but they, um, you know, they initially uh, published a report in September 2020. Two weeks after the election in November 2020, they published a 70-page document that's publicly available to anybody that's watching this that wants to, 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 um, to review it that goes through in detail the involvement of Hunter Biden and the Biden family with knowledge of a deal that was being struck between CFC buying a $9 billion stake in the U.S.-sanctioned, Russian-controlled by Putin energy company and writing a $9 billion check. They weren't a silent partner and, you know, we're going to put $9 million or $90 million or $900 million. They were buying a $9 billion stake, approximately 14% of Rosneft, once again, U.S.-sanctioned, Putin-controlled Russian energy company, and Hunter Biden and the Biden family were right in the middle of all of that. Have you had any contact with Hunter or Jim Biden? No, the last... <laughs> so the last contact I had with the Biden family is actually when I was in my interview with the, uh, um, with the FBI on October 23rd for that five-plus hours. Um, on my BlackBerry, Jim Biden called me via WhatsApp. And, um, you know, I was there voluntarily, but... Uh, so my phone starts ringing in the middle of this interview. So I looked down and I'm like... I'm like, is he really calling me right now? <laughs> so I show the phone to my lawyer and he's like, and then I show it to the agents. The agents got up out of their chair and left the room. They were like, uh, you can take that call if you want. And so I answered it and there was nobody on the other side. So I don't know if it was a uh, mistake or they were trying to send me a message or uh, what it was, but that's the last uh, interaction or communication I've had with the Biden family. So, so you are the key to this story and there's a lot at stake. I wish I wasn't, but... Yeah. Of course, you didn't choose it, obviously. But you are, and there's an awful lot at stake. Um, are, are you concerned about what the consequences might be for you and your family? Um, yeah, of course. I, I mean, I have a, um, my immediate family, my extended family, uh, I'm concerned, but the good news is they're all patriots. You know, we all uh, bleed red, white, and blue. We believe in this country, the greatest country in the world, uh, hands down. 
and these facts matter. Um, I don't matter, the, the facts matter. Um, and the American people deserve to know them and, um, and verify them and ask their senators and congressmen to verify them and ultimately uh, hold the uh, Biden family and uh, the current administration accountable for them. I mean, imagine this, to this day, two years, Joe Biden has yet to be asked, did he ever meet with me? Not one time. Not one time. So we've had two years to look into you and we looked into you before our first interview. Uh, and I should say this because I think our viewers should know, you know, we've interviewed a lot of whistleblowers. I have over 30 years more than. Um, and, you know, a lot of them are telling the truth, probably most, but almost all of them want something. And we can say, because we verified it, you're not actually looking for anything. You don't need the money, that's for sure. It's only downside for you. Um, and that's one of the reasons we were confident enough in you to do a, a second interview. Why are you coming out now again? I'm coming out now because American people still are being lied to about the facts, right? Nothing's been done. They're still thinking, oh, that deal never happened, or, you know, Hunter Biden was a troubled child. They're not aware of the tens of millions of dollars, the thousands of, you know, pages of documentation and the facts. The DOJ is claiming they're gonna, they had to couch this. They can't do anything near an election. I don't want to be sitting here in December and they actually indict Hunter Biden and then the American people are like, why weren't we made aware of those facts? This is crazy. I would have changed my vote for that congressman or that senator or that governor or that attorney general. So um, uh, that's why I'm coming out now. And as I referenced earlier, I came back from summer travel to find out that the person that was running point on the trove of documents and text messages that were provided to the FBI just suddenly retired and walked out of the building. Does it... I mean, you've got the most powerful agencies in the world, the FBI and the CIA, working against you. That's not an overstatement. We've seen it happen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that that's, you just made my heart skip. But uh. it's true, <laughs> and that's quite an array of opponents. Um, red, white, and blue, greatest country on the face of the earth. Um, I believe facts matter, and the truth ultimately will come out. Did you hear that? He just said that Joe Biden's brother called him while he was talking to the FBI. How would Joe Biden's brother know he was talking to the FBI? Who's running the FBI? Well, his name is Chris Wray. We now know that the FBI suppressed the story. They never called Bobolinsky back, never did a second interview. And then they called the social media companies to censor it to influence the outcome of a presidential election. Has that ever happened? Why is this man still running the FBI? Why has no one asked him about it? Why has nobody asked Christopher Wray when he's been in Congress before various committees answering questions? Nobody's asked him about it. And of course, obviously, the go-to excuse that they always give, especially those from the intelligence agencies when they're in Congress, is we can't discuss any details of an ongoing investigation. Well, Tony Bobolinsky said they never called him back. He's got hundreds of thousands of pages of evidence that nobody's questioned the authenticity of, not a single thing. It's all there. Recordings, hours of recordings, telephone recordings. Some of those hours are of the president of the United States, Joe Biden, much of it before he was president, but some of it was when he was vice president. And the FBI has just turned their backs on all of this. If that doesn't put some fear in your heart, 
These are the people in this agency that's been known for decades as being the premier law enforcement agency on the planet. They were always rock solid, totally committed to the red, white, and blue, the rule of law. Now, it's all politically motivated. It's all governed by somebody in every issue that comes before the FBI. They've got a stake in it, a personal stake in it. And that's what it looks like is happening in this Hunter Biden, now Hunter Biden, Joe Biden debacle. From Krakow to Grand Island, Milan to Hanoi, this is TNN, the Truth News Network. Hello. Hello, sir. I hear you having problems putting together your new kitchen unit. Oh, yeah. Uh, the instructions say the that. What now? The instruction manual. It makes absolute... Stop reading that. Well, what would you suggest I use? I suggest you use the fact you're a man. Huh? Guys who got pride never relied on no guide, sucker. I'll give you some step-by-step instructions. <laughs> Buy Snickers, remove wrapper, bite chocolate, and get some nuts. Go to GetSomeNuts.tv for more Snickers man coaching. Long live the courageous, the tenacious, the ones who push forward and give back. Long live the greater good, the helping hand, those who fall and get back up. And long live the truck with the strength to overcome. The will to outwork. And the commitment to outlast them all. Ram. Proven to last. You know what's odd? I'm... I'm, uh looking around, getting the next stories that we're going to talk about lined up. And I've told you before we have the availability, we have on our satellite website, the story goes out through satellite and it goes all around the world, 92 different countries. And I can see the cities from which different people are listening in. And I've got two that are listening right now, as a matter of fact, and they're listening from Langley, Virginia. Now, what's the big deal about that? Langley is pretty much CIA world headquarters. Now, why would why would a, a couple of things came to mind? Why would they be listening? If it is, and it not necessarily means that it's the CIA that's listening in on this show. And even if they're plugged in, I'm sure nobody's listening live. They're just recording it. Uh, we promoted the fact that we were going to have the Tony Bobolinsky, at least half of the interview with Tucker Carlson, Maybe that was, but I think more than that, what it is, this is the CIA. They have a way to not show up that I would never know that they were listening to or if they were ever logging into Truth News Network. And I'm not, I'm not a conspiracist. I'm just pointing, this is factual. I'm just pointing this out to let you know the government can do pretty much what they want to do. They can intercept communications I've talked before about a friend of mine that's way up in the U.S. Treasury that the way we met was he was monitoring a cell phone call and he broke in on it. And uh, 
I didn't know who he was. I'd heard his name, but he called in to speak to the other parties that were on that business phone call and later found out he was watching them more than he was watching me on behalf of the U.S. Treasury. And I found out after an, a relationship with him through the last five or six years, it's commonplace. The NSA, they record millions of phone calls of Americans every day, and they always have. Of course, they didn't ask for permission to do it. They just started doing it. So there is a a big brother. Back to the phone call and the monitoring there. I think probably more than anything, that was purposely put so that I would see or it would be on record that somebody from Langley, Virginia was logged into this show at this particular point. Just thought I'd throw that out there. What's up next? Well, in our elections, folks, it's not looking good for Democrats, and it's getting worse every day. After July, July's gaffe by Jill Biden, in which she likened Latinos to breakfast tacos, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made headlines Friday for a statement about the need for migrants to pick the crops in Florida. So what does all this mean to the people out there? Well, if you're a Latino, that doesn't make you feel good about the leadership of the party that's supposed to be taking care of you and all about you and your life and your career when they relegate you to being nothing more than breakfast tacos or that the only need for migrants in Florida is they need you there to pick crops. Five weeks, actually 33 days remaining before the November 8th election. There's a new poll out. From now to election day, there are going to be new polls out every day. The latest show, Democrats losing ground with these Latino voters. How bad is it? This is from NBC News and Telemundo. 54% of Latino voters want Democrats to keep control of Congress in the midterms. 33% want to see Republicans in control. Now, that would seem like that's good news, and if... If you're supporting Democrats, it is good news, but it's nothing like it's been in the past. These results show that support for Democrats is eroding among Hispanic voters. The poll in three election cycles since 2016, they show the whole story. Democrats led by 38 points in the 2016 election, followed by 34 points in 2018 and 26 in 2020, before seeing their lead shave to 21 in the current cycle. Now, this came from, as I said, NBC News and Telemundo. So you know if it's weighted, it's weighted in the Democrats' direction. On September 30th, Speaker Pelosi stumbled into ethnic stereotyping when she criticized Governor Ron DeSantis from Florida for transferring Venezuelan migrants to Martha's Vineyard. And that's when she got into this thing about they need you in Florida to pick crops down there. The Republican National Committee Latino account released a response on Twitter. Nancy Pelosi thinks immigrants should be picking crops. When Democrats show you their true colors, believe them. Democrats have failed Latinos on every front, not just in the economy. That is why so many are moving to the Republican Party. In mid-July, Jill Biden received a bunch of backlash for stereotyping Latinos and called them breakfast tacos. 
the diversity of this community, as distinct as the bodegas of the Bronx, as beautiful as the blossoms of Miami, and as unique as the breakfast tacos here in San Antonio, is your strength. Jill said that when she was speaking in the South Texas city of Miami at the Unidos U.S. annual conference. When invoking the Bronx bodegas, Biden mispronounced the word for the small grocery stores, calling them as bogettas. <laughs> oh my gosh, the National Association of Hispanic Journalists responded to her. We are not tacos, they said. <laughs> Our heritage as Latinos is shaped by various di- diasporas, cultures, and fl- uh, food traditions. Do not reduce us to stereotypes. She later apologized. And then in July, Arizona Democrat Representative Ruben Gallego drew criticism for accusing Tanya Contreras Wheelis, who's a Hispanic woman running for Congress as a Republican in Arizona's 4th District, of not being authentically Latina because she took her husband's name. I thought you did that. Oh, well, what do I know? So that's kind of just one thing. But then I I decided to flip over to the other side of the aisle and see what the news media on the other side think. And one that I went to, and I held my nose when I went to their particular story, is MSNBC. MSNBC political commentator Steve Karnacki, he outlined yesterday how Joe Biden's approval rating could deliver devastating election results for Democrats. First, he said, the big picture indicator. We always say the president's job approval rating, usually the most reliable indicator of how the midterms are going to go. For Democrats, it's not good, he said. Biden's approval rating is at 42.7%, and he's talking to host Joy Reid. Put that in perspective with modern presidents in their first midterm, Biden's right at the same level that Trump, Obama, and Bill Clinton were and what were brutal midterms for them. The only exception in modern times, he said, George W. Bush a year after 9-11. You see what this meant? For Trump, he lost the House in 18 for Obama. His party lost the party in 10 for Clinton. His party lost the House in 94. Biden's approval rating is right in the range. That's bad news for Democrats. Biden's average job approval rating is 42.7, according to Real Clear Politics, faces double-digit net disapproval with regards to his handling of the economy, crime, inflation, and immigration. What's made this a little more complicated, though, is when you look at the generic ballot, when you ask folks, Democrat or Republican, who would you like to see control Congress next year? The Republicans have the lead on average on this question. It's by one point. Democrats actually were ahead until last week or two, he said. This is Karnacki speaking. But if you look at the past and the most recent waves in midterm elections of 2018, 2014, 2010, and 2006, these were all wave elections, and the party that won those waves was up by more than a point at this juncture in the race. So the generic ballot is closer than we've seen in wave elections of recent times. Now, again, I'm going to say this for a lot of different people to hear between now and midterm election day in 33 days. Polls 
are, they can be and there are manipulated by people to get results that they want to. And there are tons of ways they manipulate them by the questions they ask, by the inflection in the voices of the questioner that is pushing whoever's on the other end of the telephone to get a particular type of answer from them. And typically, when they're crafted to do that, they want to get that person to answer in the way that is going to be good for the the political party that hired them to do the calls. So Republicans now, and in an increasing number of crucial Senate battleground states, they're keying in on the issue of crime. They're bombarding voters with the message that electing Democrats is going to even increase lawlessness further. And I guess the bellwether for them is Pennsylvania. Republicans are going crazy on high-profile incidents in the Philadelphia area, including the recent ransacking of a Wawa store and the shooting of five students outside a high school last month. Their Democrat Senate nominee, John Fetterman, who's the currently the lieutenant governor of Pennsylvania, he's been forced to play defense by erasing statements of support for the Black Lives Matter movement from his website. In Wisconsin, Republicans are trying to link Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, the Democrat Senate nominee, to former San Francisco DA Chesa Baudouin, who was recalled from office in June amid growing voter frustration over rising crime and homelessness. Republicans see the issue as one of their best opportunities to drive base voters to the polls and as a wedge between Democrats and suburban swing voters, especially in those bellwether states, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, and North Carolina. That's according to Republican strategists. There are few issues that unite the concerns of Republicans, independents, and Democrats in this environment quite like crime, especially in Pennsylvania. The party sees crimes as the antidote to its vulnerability on the issue of abortion rights, which has revved up some Democrats and pushed swing voters away from the GOP in the wake of the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Some Senate Democrats saw rising crime rates as a potential political liability months ago, and Senator Richard Blumenthal, a Democrat from Connecticut, privately pressed the White House to come up with a plan to address the issue. He said it's a huge problem. Let's face it. This guy's repeatedly on film talking about how he wants to release as many people as possible from prison and end life sentences for murderers. It's so far outside the mainstream. Retiring Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, who seated up for grabs in November, he's talking about Fetterman. Fetterman's running against Dr. Oz for Pat Toomey's U.S. Senate seat in Pennsylvania. The National Republican Senatorial Committee has paid for ads highlighting Fetterman's support for sanctuary cities, eliminating life sentences for murders, and reducing prison populations. Fetterman, he responded last week with his own ad that features Montgomery County Sheriff Sean Kilkenny defending the Democrat candidate and asserted that Fetterman, Pennsylvania's lieutenant governor now, supports giving second chances to people who deserve it and nonviolent marijuana offenders. Republicans are also attacking Fetterman for supporting clemency 
for Lee and Dennis Horton, brothers who served 27 years in jail after being convicted for robbery and a murder. Fetterman, who chairs the State Board of Pardons, advocated for their release and hired them to serve as field organizers for his campaign. The Republican National Committee's tweeted out just about daily with updates of crimes and crime stats in the Philadelphia area. Yesterday, it shared footage of a carjacking at a Philly gas station and highlighted that there have been more than a thousand carjackings in the city this year. And their strategy looks like it's paying off as the Republican candidate, Dr. Oz, has gained some ground in the polls over the last couple of weeks. Yesterday, the Cook Political Report, which in August shifted the race from toss-up to lead Democrat, moved it back to the toss-up column. Democrats say Republicans are trying to distract attention from abortion and other issues where Democrat candidates have an advantage. In Wisconsin, they're circulating a photo of Baudouin, San Francisco's controversial former district attorney, attending a fundraiser for Barnes a year ago. Incumbent Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin and the National uh, Republican Senate Committee have labeled Barnes as dangerously liberal in crime and highlighted Milwaukee's rising crime weight. It's happening across the board. In the Senate, the races that are hotly contested in the Senate, all of this plethora of, I don't know, unethical, ununderstandable things that are being promoted, not even just attempting to stop them from happening like cashless bail and dropping all of these charges and wanting to let people out of jail, even some murderers, including Fetterman running for the U.S. Senate seat in Pennsylvania in their past. Just like Fetterman, Barnes up in Wisconsin has tried to push back by criticizing Senator Johnson for voting against the $1.9 trillion American Rescue Plan, which he says promoted and supported public safety and accused Johnson of being sympathetic to the mob of supporters of former President Trump that invaded the Capitol on January 6th last year. One Democrat strategist pointed out the American Rescue Plan included $350 billion in funding that state and local governments could use to hire new police officers. So let me ask you about this. All of the money in the pandemic relief stuff that went out to cities, especially blue cities and blue states, the ones where people like Fetterman and Barnes are living in and working in, tens of billions of dollars went out to these cities to hire police officers that were fleeing during the pandemic because of the change in the political environment that was instigated by the George Floyd death. Remember that? Defund the police, defund the police. And many of these in these blue cities and blue counties and blue states, they've done just that. In New York City, Mayor Eric Adams, his predecessor, I don't even like to mention his name, when this all came down, he cut the biggest department in the New York Police Department, the investigative departments for crimes out on the street of all kinds. 
He did away with the entire department. Stuff like that's happening around the nation. And then they wonder why crime is going through the roof and doing worse every day. In Milwaukee, surges in crime and murders. That's elevated crime as an issue. Senator Johnson is working on Barnes' statements and record on bail and reducing prison populations. Senate Republicans are now trying to expand the debate on crime to other Senate battlegrounds like Nevada and Wisconsin. In Nevada, former State Attorney General Adam Laxalt, a Republican on Tuesday, released a new ad titled Dangerous, in which Nevada police groups said they've switched their endorsement from incumbent Senator Catherine Cortez Masto, who's a Democrat, to her Republican challenger, Laxalt. The ad featured testimonials by local law enforcement officials that attacked Cortez Masto for rubber-stamping radical officials, including activists who refused to prosecute drug dealers. North Carolina, Republicans have put the spotlight on Democrat Senate candidate Cherie Beasley's record as a state Supreme Court justice. The National Republican Senate Committee spent over a million dollars on ads in May, seeking to define Beasley early in the race by calling attention to her ruling vacating the death sentence of a man who shot a boy in the face and another man convicted of assaulting a young woman. Factcheck.org, however, concluded the ad lacked context. (laughs) Not facts. It lacked context. Hey, if you did the crime, you served the time. It's called the law. (laughs) The Democrat-allied Senate Majority Pact responded with their own ad. They defended Beasley. More recently, National Republican Senate Committee has perceived Beasley's vote to vacate a man's habitual felon conviction, which would have resulted in a lighter criminal sentence. Senate GOP campaign arm says decisions like this are at odds with her pledge in North Carolina to keep North Carolina communities safe. So, there's story after story like this, and we're going to move on after I tell you about this one thing. And this one just blows my mind. Yesterday, the Washington, D.C. City Council voted 12 to 1 to advance a bill that will allow foreign nationals, regardless of if they have visas or illegally in the United States, they want to allow them to vote in local elections like school board races and even mayoral elections. Our immigration neighbors of all statuses participate, contribute, and care about our community and our city. That's from D.C. Councilmember Charles Allen. They, like all D.C. residents, deserve a right to have a say in their government. I'm sorry, that's not factual. They don't have the right to vote. They shouldn't have the right to vote, even if it's just in local elections, because they're here unconstitutionally and are every day they're here, they're breaking federal immigration laws, which is punishable by jail. Only Councilwoman Mary Che, who's a Democrat, by the way, voted against that bill, suggesting she would have supported it had something been in the bill that included a minor 30-day residency requirement for foreign nationals that are looking to register to vote. 
She said, I asked this question of the committee as a whole. Could someone who took the bus from Texas or was put on the bus from Texas or wherever and dropped off at the vice president's property and then remained in the District of Columbia for 30 days and was 18 years old, could that person then vote in our local elections? And the answer was yes, she said. So now the council's council's got to approve the plan in a final vote before the bill goes to Democrat Mayor Muriel Bowser for approval, and you know she'll rubber stamp it. In June, just a note, the New York State Supreme Court struck down a similar law passed by the New York City Council that sought to allow nearly a million foreign nationals the ability to vote in municipal elections. I just don't think you should. I can't see how we can, in any circumstances, justify allowing somebody who is not a citizen of the United States to vote in any United States election, federal, state, or local. Why is that? Why do you think they all want to come here? Because it's still known around the world, the United States, with all its shortcomings, many of which we've talked about here today, it's still known worldwide to be the best country on the planet to live. And the very things that they want to come here for, they just assume that all of the Americans that have all of those good things right now, we got them just for waking up one day, that nobody had to do anything to get them put together. They don't even think about, nor all these open borders people willing to talk about those that are coming in illegally. Hey, we did. Our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, great-great-great-great-grandparents paid amazing prices personally to build this country and build it, moving it up, getting it better and better from generation to generation. And yeah, we want to be open to let people immigrate here from other countries. But what we demand is what our Constitution says about that, which is you can come here. If you want to come here, we want you to come here. But you got to come here and do a few things to be here. And the first one is to be here legally. I just cannot get my brain wrapped around anybody that wants to let anybody else come here if they're not coming here legally. Yeah, there's a process, but there's a price to pay. Our, as I just said, our forefathers paid a huge price through generations to get this country to the level of which it is today. Anything worth having is worth hurting for. That's a title of a song my brother wrote years ago, and it's obviously talking about a relationship with someone of the opposite sex, but it applies across the board. If you don't pay some price for something you want to get and you get it, it's not going to be nearly as valuable to you as it was before. When it's given to you, it's no big deal. When you have to work for it, oh my gosh, it is a big deal. Look back in, when your kids were young and you were giving them allowances. If there were no requirements for them to do anything around the house or help out or anything at all, they just took that allowance they got every week or every month and they just felt like they were owed that. They didn't pay a price to get it. But when you give kids chores, and it depends on their ages, 
but things like, you know, cleaning up their room, organizing a closet in their room, taking out the trash, helping in the kitchen after dinner so many nights a week. They're doing something and they feel like they're earning the right to get that allowance at the end of the week. When there's no price to pay, nothing means the same as it does when there is a cost. Now, I've been keeping my eyes on this labor situation in the United States. I don't understand why the pandemic was over. So many people that lost their jobs or were put on indefinite um, sitting at home indefinitely. We'll talk to you after the pandemic's over but those jobs are not being filled. What's going on? New government data revealed yesterday that the number of job openings in the U.S. fell by more than a million between July and August, which is a much sharper drop than forecasters expected. And what it is, you know, I hate to bring it up, but it is, it's a sign of cracks in the labor market. The Bureau of Labor Statistics said in a report yesterday the number of job vacancy on the last day of August was just over 10 million. Forecasters were expecting about 10.5 million job openings in August, which would have been a more modest retreat from the uh, 11.2 million in July. Big miss in job openings, said Alfonso Pecatello, former portfolio manager for ING, now author of a newsletter, in a statement on Twitter, the move down in vacancies, the sharpest single month drop since the start of the pandemic, suggested businesses are pulling back on hiring as the Federal Reserve tightens monetary policy and the economy slows. Now, what is the Federal Reserve? What are they doing? I'm not going to get into all of that. They basically control from the top levels the cost of money and mortgage rates. They do that by changing the federal Federal Reserve interest rates, which is the rate that they charge banks when they give them those bonds that the banks sell. This drop in the number of openings, likely to be seen as a welcome sign by the Fed that its inflation-fighting rate hikes are filtering into the real economy and denning the job market. But keep this, keep this in mind. If people don't go to work, What are they going to do? How are they going to live? Somebody's got to pay. The Fed has been looking to bring down the number of vacancies and unemployed persons into closer alignment. Back in August, there were just over 6 million unemployed in the U.S. That was up from 5.7 million in in, uh, July. Fed Chair Jerome Powell in September said he was hoping for vacancies to go down without an associated rise and unemployment. Job openings could come down significantly, and they need to, without as much of an increase in unemployment as has happened in earlier historical episodes, he said. Commenting on those 11.2 million numbers from July, Powell described it as incredibly high relative to the number of people looking for work. So why aren't those people going to work? It's real simple. It's real simple. They want more money. They've been told by this administration they deserve more money. That these evil big corporations are starving people to death. They're not paying them enough. 
people that concentrate on that and talk about that all the time, they don't get it. They don't understand how the U.S. economy works. It's about, as I've said before, even today, it's about supply and demand. The supply is on the company side. It could be goods. It could be services. But they bring something to the market that people want. It takes employees to get there. It takes products. It takes production of products. All of those things go into bringing something to market that people want. That means people have to work to do all of that. Why would Americans, since the pandemic, why would they not want to go back to work? You would think these jobs that are open would decline sharply, even though the Fed said they're not that worried about that because the unemployment rates are down. Now, what does that mean? You figure that out, and you'll answer my labor market dilemma. I don't quite get the way that that flows to come up with the questions that I just asked. But one thing is for sure. Cost of everything's going up. We're paying more for everything that's going up. And there's just not the money laying around for these companies to give expectant employees those big raises that they think they deserve and that they certainly won't. When you're fed up with the nagging heartburn of today's lies, how do you spell relief? TNN, the Truth News Network. Des Moines HelpWanted.com salutes the employee of the month. The one employee you can't live without. The others, let's just call them Dave. Dave, we need to talk about your sick days. What seems to be the problem, Mr. Employee of the Month? Last week you were out all five days. I was sick. Thanks for checking in. You posted on social media that you were at a comedy club on Monday. Laughter is the best medicine. An outdoor barbecue on Tuesday. Feed a cold, starve a fever, or whichever one needs to be fed. That's the one I had. Okay, Wednesday you took a selfie, hashtag faking sick. That was supposed to say freaking sick. Thursday you were at an amusement park. Somebody stole my phone. They stole your phone and uploaded photos of you at an amusement park. Yes, fake news. Friday, you tailgated in the employee parking lot. Friday's basically the weekend. Everyone knows that. If you don't mind hiring Dave's, go to the huge national job boards. That's probably what you'll get. But if you want more employees of the month, go where local job seekers find good local jobs. We don't discriminate against people named Dave. Dave is a common name, fun to say, and so we're using it as a catch-all for lackluster employees everywhere. Please don't write us to tell us you were insulted by this ad. That would be a real Dave move, Dave. Today's show is it's just flying away. We we're inside of a quarter hour left in the whole show. Got a couple of things that I want to make sure that we talk about. You know that FBI has got that case against that pro-life father that they sent FBI, I think it was 22 or 23 people to his house to arrest him. There are some big holes in the FBI's case against him. New documents call into question two key components of the FBI's charges against this guy, Mark Houck. He's the pro-life father of seven who was arrested by federal agents last month, uh, on September 23rd, last month of the uh, last week of the month, for allegedly shoving a Planned Parenthood clinic escort. The FBI has charged Houck with two counts of assaulting a reproductive health care clinic escort, and that's in violation of the FAC, the FACE Act in which makes a a federal crime to interfere with someone, quote, because that person is a provider of reproductive health care. Uh, 
Houck's arrest by numerous federal agents made national news headlines, but newly unearthed documents undermined some of the FBI's charges against him. He was praying near an abortion clinic when a guy named Bruce Love, who claims to be a longtime abortion clinic escort, approached him and began behaving, quote, extremely aggressively and harassing Houck's then 12-year-old son. His attorney, Peter Breen, told the Daily Caller News Foundation, Love was not escorting any patients at the time of the altercation. Attorney Pete Breen said DOJ is treating Houck as if he were a drug lord or a mafia boss. It put officers' lives in danger, it put the Houck family in danger, and it was another waste of judicial resources and taxpayer resources. Love, the guy that was hurt, supposedly, he only mentioned being shoved once in a prior criminal complaint about the incident. That's according to a copy of his private criminal complaint first obtained, but Houck's federal indictment is for two instances of assault. The fact that Love only later mentioned a second shoving undermines the federal government's decision to charge out with two counts. That's according to Breen. Apparently, Mr. Love is now claiming a second instance where he says he was knocked to the ground, Breen said. That's false, and we look forward to some sort of evidence of that alleged other instance because if a crime had actually taken place, we assume that Mr. Love would have put it in his private criminal complaint that he brought to the Pennsylvania state courts. And then Houck's other attorney, Matt Heffron, offered to accept the summons on Houck's behalf and his client would show up voluntarily in an email to Assistant U.S. Attorney Anita Eve, but Eve didn't respond until the day of the arrest. When the defendant has a lawyer, a respected former federal prosecutor, offering to bring the defendant wherever the U.S. Attorney's Office would like him presented, there's no reason to send one agent, much less 20. The question is why there was a bunch of people with long guns, ballistic shields, body armor outside this peaceful person's home to effect an arrest warrant that was utterly unnecessary and really put the Hauk family in danger. The indictment, by the way, also makes no mention of patients being present. Their apparent absence undermines the federal government's use of the FACE Act to prosecute Hauk. Obviously, the DOJ and FBI haven't responded to the questions that we just shared with you about the initial arrest. Kudos from this baseball fan, me, and I'm a very hardcore Yankee fan, have been my entire life. A millionaire banker who is married to Bachelor Reality TV star turns down offers of $2 million after he caught Aaron Judge's record-breaking 60-second home run ball yesterday at the Texas Rangers Stadium in Arlington, Texas. Yankee star Aaron Judge made Major League Baseball history last night against the Ranger. His 60-second home run means he now holds the single-season American League record. And the fan who caught the ball looks like he'll be in for a hefty payday. Corey Yalman's caught the ball, but said he was not yet sure what to do with it. (laughs) I'm raising my hand. Hey, give it to me. I'll find some place. It's worth at least $2 million, and it'll bring more than that if he does decide to 
sell it, I promise you. He's married to a Bachelor reality TV star. He's a vice president of an investment company which manages $197 billion, billion with a B, worldwide. Yaman's wife, Bree Aranthemus, posted a photo of the ball to her Instagram story. And it's just up to grabs to see, since he beat Roger Maris's record, exactly what that ball is going to be worth. The only bad thing, the sad thing about that, was it should have, it should have happened in Yankee Stadium. I mean, he is a Yankee, and he fits the mold of all of those great previous Yankee stars that were home run champions. Roger Maris was one. Babe Ruth was one. Mickey Mantle was one. They're at Roger Maris again. We've, we've had a bunch of Yankees that have been really good hitters in the American League and playing against other organizations in that division that they play in, the Yankees. But anyway, it is what it is. So we've got this horrible situation that is just taking over the city, of the, the, every city in Florida, especially South Florida on the southwest side. My really close friend, his first name's Doug. He and his family live in uh, Sarasota, which is just north of where the eye of Hurricane Ian came ashore. And he's a lifer. He's been through a bunch of hurricanes, and he, he wrote me a text last night. I was checking on him again to see how they're doing as they recover. They got electricity back. They have a generator and uh, got telephone communication back and everything over the weekend. But he, he said this. He said, I will never go through another hurricane in Miami. We are moving out of state. And he mentioned possibly the, the mountains in North Carolina. He likes the Branson, Missouri, the hill of country up there, and even Dallas-Fort Worth where his son and daughter-in-law live. Now, he has been there. He is the CEO of an extremely large medical company. Um, and he loves Sarasota. It's close to Tampa. It's easy to get in and out when he's flying. And he loves it being Florida. In fact, living in Louisiana, where he lived here, that's where we first met here in northwest Louisiana. He is very used to the climate up here and the stuff that we go through. And he laughs at me <laughs> because he says... I'm not going through that stuff anymore. You guys deal with it. Here it comes. That's a wrap on Wednesday show. I want to thank you for being here. You have a great Wednesday. We'll be back tomorrow. A lot, a lot going on. Love has a way to find you. Sneaks up right behind you. There ain't no particular